Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We have been talking these past couple of months intermittently uh, and spaced out with some other topics about the evolution of civilization in independent parts of the world. And we had a segment on the Aztecs, and I figured that since we were doing so well in the New World, we would move to the next major hub, which is the Peruvian area and the area of the uh, Inca civilizations. Um, today's guest is an expert on the Inca, and I am talking about Dr. Terry Daltroy, who is the Lubat Professor of American Archaeology in the Department of Anthropology. Uh, at Columbia University. Terry has conducted research uh, in many parts of the New World, including Missouri, California, Mex- and Mexico, as well as Peru and Argentina, since 1969. Most recently, he has been supervising research by his students in the Cusco region, which has come to prominence in the past few years, certainly. And he has worked at the critical and uh, most uh, glamorous site, if you will, called Machu Picchu. His research and publications in including five books and monographs and about 50 articles, have dealt primarily with the principles and practice of Inca politics, economics, militarism, and infrastructure. For the past few years, Terry's been most concerned with the parallel intellectual project that the Incas undertook to explain their place in the cosmos and its history, focusing on issues such as knowledge formation, vitality, time, space, social, and natural order and causation. Uh, and I would say along these lines, we are getting to the point in these types of studies where we're actually trying to, for lack of a better word, get into the minds of the, the people who are, whose uh, productive works resulted in the emergence of these civilizations. So without further ado, I want to bring in my new guest and special guest for this program, Terry Daltroy. Terry, it's a pleasure to have you here. It's my pleasure to be on your show. I appreciate being asked to participate. 
Great. Terry, um, you are known at this point for having written a major overview volume on the Incas, and I believe your first edition was about 10 years ago, a sort of a general, these are the Incas kind of volume, if, if, if you want to. Uh, call it that way. I mean, we're trying to address a general public as well as our professional communities here. But one of the things that I think the public really wants to know is how have our perceptions and how are our research approaches to the Inca changing in the light of new methodologies and new approaches to archaeology, genetic genetic studies, dietary analyses, remote sensing technologies. What are we learning and how has that affected our image and our knowledge base about who the Inca were? That's a big question. Uh, Let me start out by saying what our conventional understanding of the Incas has been for quite a long period of time, and that will help set the stage for how things are being rethought. So, uh, generally speaking, we... we Pardon me. We think of the Incas as a uh, as the largest and the most complex of the New World civilizations that the Europeans encountered when they came over in the late 15th and early 16th centuries. So by the time the Spaniards arrived in uh, Peru in 1532, uh, they encountered a society that had maybe 10 to 12 million people organized in an exceptionally hierarchically well structured system. Uh, they had a, uh, a road system of perhaps as much as 24,000 miles of roads, 2,000 provincial uh, installations, all constructed under an, an umbrella of a, uh, a monarch who was considered to be a, a god on earth. He was a, a deified being. Uh, and the Incas have long been known as a society that was uh, highly ordered, very, very systematic in their political, economic, uh, military organization. And they've been treated for a long period of time as being a, a very rapidly growing society. The, the conventional view of things is that the Incas arose as an imperial power sometime after around 1438 A.D., and they were invaded by the Spaniards in 1532, which gave them a run of less than 100 years as an empire. What's been happening in the last couple of decades or so is that an awful lot of that conventional systematic overview of the Incas has been, uh, has been coming apart at the seams. Uh, so one of the things, for instance, that uh, we're now getting a much better grip on, thanks to the work of archaeologists like Brian Bauer and Alan Covey, we're getting an understanding of the characteristics of the Incas in the last couple of hundred years before the emergence of the empire, which shows how they were becoming a, an increasingly sophisticated, powerful state society for 100 or maybe even 200 years before they started their imperial exploits. So we have a much greater time depth to the emergence of the empire than we had previously, which allows us to understand um, their organizational characteristics that allowed them to go from a society of maybe 100,000 people to conquering 12 million in a period of maybe a couple of generations. So that's one big transformation that's occurred. Uh, a second one is that biological anthropologists have been taking a very close look at things like uh, DNA studies and uh, the uh, uh, dietary analyses through things like uh, strontium analysis to understand what people were eating and how they were being moved from one place to another. So we're getting a much more nuanced sense of the, uh, of the changes that the Incas wrought on the population and how that might have affected things like, let's say, um, mortuary uh, patterns, you know, how rapidly kids died, how many of them died, where people moved from one place to another, uh, what kinds of stresses they underwent in their daily life. 
Another thing that we're getting through use of uh, remote sensing technologies is, is uh, people are now starting to recognize uh, large-scale patterns in the distribution of Inca settlements that previously had been uh, underexplored. Uh, and uh, I would say people have been studying from the intellectual side of things how the Incas thought about the world, how they thought about the kinds of vitality that humans and non-human beings had in the world, and why those kinds of ideas would have changed the terrain uh, of the way they saw things operating in the world if they were under, under particular circumstances, what did they think the consequences of taking one kind of action or another would be? And so we're getting a, a kind of a, a, a mixture of changes in the um, our physical and historical understanding of the empire. At the same time, we're getting a, a, some really significant insights into the way they think they thought about the way the world worked and why they would have made choices. So it's, it's a very exciting time to be working in the field. Terry, I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by what you just said. And if you would, just for a, a bit of historical perspective, um, even I, who have studied uh, anthropology and Inca archaeology for a long time, we sort of assume a quasi, if not necessarily a stagnant yeah. model, a model in which we're getting incremental advances in our knowledge base. And what you're saying is in the past decade or so, the level of knowledge has increased almost exponentially based on new methodologies and technologies. So what I'd like for you to do, just sort of uh, to, to, to go back to what you started to say, is how our perspective, how long was our perspective on the Incas, if not stagnant, sort of, uh, sort of, locked in for a while. How long have we been doing research on the Incas and how have those models been changing um, over the course of archaeological research, say, up until the last major breakthrough? Okay, the the place to start with that is actually in uh, November of 1532, November 15th, when the Spaniards had their first encounters with the Incas. So they had uh, uh, 14 notaries along with that first expedition, 168 soldiers under uh, Francisco Pizarro. And their job was to, among other things, record what they saw so that they were sending accounts back to uh, the king of Spain. So the Spaniards undertook this process of studying the Incas very early on. Now, since the Incas themselves did not have a writing system or, or a recording system that we would think of as writing in a contemporary sense where they took uh, uh, words and sentences and grammar and expressed that on a page in a graphical sense. A lot of what we know about the Incas came to us uh, through the writings of the first Spanish chroniclers, who of course didn't understand a thing about what they were seeing for quite a, a period of time. Uh, they were much more interested in the conquest and incorporation than they were in understanding the characteristics of the people who they were attempting to dominate and exploit. So for about 400 years or so, uh, most of what we have understood about the Incas came through the eyes of the Spaniards, through uh, travelers, through soldiers, through uh, scribes, notaries, chroniclers, church documents, censuses taken, undertaken by the Spaniards, very much intended uh, to, to deal with their own issues. So up until about the middle of the uh, 20th century, so people basically took those documents to be the source of uh, truth and information about the Inca Empire. Um, starting about the, you know, the middle of the 20th century, people started to apply uh, anthropological theory, looking at the Incas in a more comparative sense, and archaeology really came to the fore. So uh, Inca archaeology really only started to take off around 1944 when uh, uh, John Rowe published a book called The Archaeology of Cusco. Uh, 
And then there's a whole series of studies that, that came along after that, and they were largely intended to understand uh, the material remains of the Inca Empire as uh, kind of uh, uh, oh, spices on top of the historical narrative. That is, we couldn't really learn right. anything from the archaeology right. per se. Terry, let me just uh, step back for one second. Was yeah. there any significant archaeology done, say, in the first half of the 20th century? Yes, there was some done. Uh, actually, Inca archaeology started around the mid to late 19th century when uh, people did expeditions. Uh, uh, Adolf Bandelier, for example, um, uh, Charles Wiener, a, a French traveler, and a series of other people uh, carried out expeditions where they recorded Inca sites uh, descriptively, mostly in the Cusco area and in the Lake Titicaca area. And starting in the 1930s or so, um, Luis Balcarcel, a, a very prominent uh, Peruvian archaeologist, undertook uh, research in the Cusco area. So there is some history, but it was largely descriptive. It wasn't intended to provide any sort of uh, new perspective. It was intended to be kind of a, uh, a complement to the history, not a, a counterpoint to it. But certainly there was some information on architecture, monuments, um, and that kind of information. Were they talking anything at all about settlements, or was that not on the agenda at all? Uh, settlements weren't really on the agenda until Machu Picchu came along with Hiram right. Bingham's work in 1911. Uh, that, of course, was spectacular. Um, Bingham had actually uh, uh, been down in, in uh, South America on a geographic exchange uh, um, conference, and he traveled through Peru, and, and his interest was really piqued. So he carried out an expedition, and uh, his goal was to find uh, the lost Inca capital of Vilcabamba, down in the jungle somewhere north of Cusco where the Incas had retreated in 1536 and managed to maintain an, imp uh, an independent kind of mini-empire for, uh, for 40 years uh, uh, resisting the uh, Spanish conquest. So when uh, Bingham found Machu Picchu, um, it, of course, is enormous news. And from, from the New World, it was you know, the rough equivalent of finding uh, King Tut's tomb in Egypt, which came along in 1923-24. Correct, so yeah. there, there was a uh, <clears throat> explosion of interest in the area. It, it turns out that Bingham had actually gone even farther down into the jungles to a place called Mitcos um, Rosas uh, Pata and even farther to a place called Espiritu Pampa. He dismissed those as the Inca capital, whereas in fact he had actually found them. So Espiritu Pampa was the last Inca capital, but Bingham didn't recognize it as such. Instead, he went for the the truly spectacular site of Machu Picchu, which we now understand in a very different context as a, uh, a royal estate rather than a, uh, a capital of a, uh, a resistance empire. How did he visualize Machu Picchu at the time, and how did his notions change? Because most people who do study archaeology certainly uh, have some indications of who Bingham was and how he uh, was instrumental in the discovery of Machu Picchu. Yeah, well, actually, uh, a number of people had uh, been to Machu Picchu before. It was on maps. People had known about it. There's a, uh, a litany of people who'd been there before before Bingham. But he was the one who really mounted the first serious expedition uh, to the site. He went in with a, uh, uh, a group of uh, uh, biologists, and uh, it, was a, it was a multifaceted, uh, really, uh, in, in a serious sense, a serious scientific interdisciplinary expedition. 
And uh, his goal was to um, explore the site, to try to understand what its character was in terms of who the residents were, so they excavated a series of tombs. He wanted to try to uh, interpret the archaeology to recognize what might have been, let's say, uh, royal uh, residences, what might have been temple architecture. Uh, he was really interested in um, providing the full picture of where Machu Picchu uh, sat in the um, in the immediate post-Inca era, the independent era. And unfortunately, while his work in substance was very, very good, uh, his interpretations were biased by his interest in demonstrating a point rather than uh, in accepting that this was one of numerous royal estates, truly the most spectacular of them all, but it was not exactly what he thought he was looking at. And so his perception was, uh, over the course of time, was effectively disproved as uh, increasing bits and pieces of information progressed and the scientific community was enriched by additional information and technologies. Um, I think we're going to have to take a break here for a bit and we will come back with this very compelling discussion with Dr. Terry Daltroy of Columbia University right after these words. Find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. How do you know if you're living with an addict? If you think you know all the recognizable signs, you probably don't. If you're listening to and reading from the so-called experts, you probably don't. You need to hear from a parent, just like yourself, who has been there and can tell you what it's like firsthand. Please listen to Afflicted by Addiction with Bradley DeHaven. Our program is heard every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. It just might save your life or the life of someone you love. Adoption changes a family forever for the adopters as well as the adoptees. There are many adjustments that need to be made from lifestyle to financial and the personal rewards are unlimited. Listen every week for Your Adoption Coach with Kelly Ellison. We will examine in detail such topics as international and domestic adoption. We will talk with adoption professionals and hear stories about real families adopting. If you've been thinking about adoption or recently began the process, you'll want to tune in to be inspired every Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Can you dig it, baby? 
We're back. Uh, this is Joe Schildenrein again with a special episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We are exploring the world of the Incas, and we are looking at it from a variety of different perspectives, uh, sort of starting from a historical background, the traditional models that we've had of the Incas uh, based on the documentation, which exclusively came from the Spanish side. And now we are talking a little bit about some of the earlier spectacular discoveries um, with our guest, Dr. Terry Daltroy, uh, beginning with the Hiram Bingham expeditions in the early 20th century. Terry, if, uh, if you would just sort of round out uh, where we were once Bingham had, had done the major corpus of his research and where we stood in terms of our understanding of the Incas after his major work had been completed and, and what it led to. Sure. Uh, well, Bingham uh, started doing his research on Machu Picchu in 1911 and uh, published a series of uh, uh, papers and books, a uh, very well-known one called Machu Picchu, Citadel of the Incas, which came out in 1930 and has been uh, republished because of its popularity. And, and he, was, uh, he was responsible for popularizing the idea that uh, he had found the, uh, the site of Vilcabamba, the lost Inca capital, uh, where the Incas retreated into the Amazonian jungles after the Spaniards took over Cusco. Uh, that idea held uh, in a very strong way until, with, with some professional doubts, uh, until maybe the 1980s or the 1990s when an explorer by the name of Jean Savoy and then a very adventurous, uh, adventur adventurous architect by the name of Vincent Lee went farther down into the jungles. Uh, for a long time, people thought, okay, Machu Picchu is the end of the line. You get there, there's really nothing on beyond that. And it turns out, actually, that there are quite a few Inca sites down below Machu Picchu. There are uh, some major uh, coca-growing estates uh, down below there, for example, where one of my graduate students is doing his research. But there's a whole series of, of sites that the Incas established down below there that Vincent Lee uh, studied uh, at great difficulty and, and personal cost to... Uh, I don't know, to his health, but certainly to the, the travails that he went through. Uh, and published in a book called uh, Forgotten Vilcabamba, which came out about 20 years ago. And that just turned things on its head because he, what he did was he documented um, what, uh, uh, what Bingham thought he had found, but Lee actually said, okay, this is really it. And that's now accepted by the professional community as this whole array of really, really neat stone buildings and, and uh, planned Inca settlements down in the jungle. So that's where uh, the research is going on now in the Neo-Inca state. Uh, so what Machu Picchu was thought to be uh, is now actually down maybe 50, 60 miles below that. So we're looking at, uh, obviously, a much more complex configuration of sites and obviously patterns of human interaction than the ones that were originally conceived of. And you're looking, I guess, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you're looking at about 50 or 60 years where people had sort of the same notion of Machu Picchu being the end all and not really concerning themselves with the infrastructure of the entire uh, society and population itself. Is that correct? Well, yeah, in a way. What, you have to understand that uh, for those people who haven't been to the, um, the other side of the Andes, down, heading down into the Amazonian jungles, it's really difficult terrain. And until recently, in a lot of places, there were no passable roads. Um, the, the main Inca, one of the main Inca roads from Machu Picchu down into the jungle still hasn't been found yet. Um, and mm -hmm. the areas that we've been working in, 
literally, uh, you don't find the archaeological sites until you trip over them because the, the jungle overgrowth is so dense. So it's a hard place to work in, but it turns out that it was really important for the Incas and uh, that the difficulty of the terrain and the, uh, and the forestation was one of the reasons why the Spaniards had such a hard time getting the Incas out of their last stronghold. So they could, was it a question of uh, they couldn't find them or they didn't have access or there was just, it was impossible to really locate them or uh, how, did, how did that work once they made their original discovery of the Incas? What happened after that? I mean, what? Uh... Well, the Spaniards tried sending down a, mu- a bunch of missions and they tried to negotiate with them. Uh, as you might imagine, the last uh, Inca ruler who uh, held co-rule in Spain, a fellow by the name of Manco Inca, uh, was invested in, in Cusco as the last ruler in 1535 under the watchful Spanish eyes. And he found out very quickly that he actually wasn't going to be able to, uh, uh, to rule independently. And so he managed to escape Cusco, went down into the jungles, and they, they put on a, um, 40 years of guerrilla campaigns raiding the Spaniards, causing them all sorts of trouble up in the highlands. So the Spaniards tried sending priests, they tried sending military expeditions, uh, and they were all rebuffed. Uh, the Incas, on the other hand, uh, tried negotiating with the Spaniards, saying, well, look, let's treat ourselves as co-equals. You guys are uh, representatives of the King of Spain. We're the rulers of the uh, Empire of the Four Parts, uh, which is Tawantinsuyu, the name the Incas had for their own empire. Uh, and so let's, uh, let's get along with one another. That didn't work with the Spaniards. Finally, in 1572, uh, the Viceroy of Cusco sent down a successful military expedition, captured the last um, independent Inca ruler brought him up to Cusco and beheaded him in the square there, uh, bringing the uh, uh, the lineage of uh, ruler of rule by a set of gods on earth to an end uh, out in front of all of his uh, compatriots. And that was was that the beginning of the end, or what? what uh... Yeah, that was that was the that was kind of the end for an independent Inca state. There's really no other resistance there. But one of the other things you have to keep in mind here is that even even as the Spaniards came in and as smallpox wrought its havoc and in many places upwards of 75, 80, 90 percent of the population died from war, disease, and overwork, the Spaniards were still vastly outnumbered by the native uh, members of the, of the Andes. So uh, they had a very tenuous uh, toehold in much of the Andes. So for, for quite a period of time, there was a, uh, uh, there was a struggle between indigenous ways of life and the uh, colonial ways of life that the uh, Spaniards tried to impose. And uh, one of the, the long-term consequences of that is that the Inca legacy is still very much alive today. Uh, Peruvian peoples, for example, uh, many of them still speak one, uh, one of the uh, two main indigenous languages, either Quechua or Aymara. Um, the, the image of the Peruvian nation is built around the image of the Inca as an independent uh, power uh, with a, uh, a considerable history to it. So the fact that the last Inca political leadership was wiped out in 1572 uh, really overlooks the fact that the, uh, the traditional society and, and the ways of doing things uh, still carry a great deal of weight in the Peruvian nation today. 
Has the legacy of the Inca been revived in a, in a grander way in, say, in the past 15, 20 years as a lot of independence movements are gaining a lot of strength all over South America and appear to be drawing on their ancient traditions and their indigenous heritage? Is that, do we see that in Peru today? Do we see sort of a minor resurgence in, in uh, shall we say, Inca identity or indigenous identity? Yeah, that's, that's manifest in, in a variety of ways, ranging from the most positive and benign to uh, military insurrection. So on the positive side of things, for example, uh, Quechua is, has been recognized for about 25 years by the Peruvian government as one of the two languages of the nation. Uh, so it's when, official. It's official. It's official, yeah. It's official, mm-hmm. I think, since 1976. Uh-huh. Um, and the... Uh, um, there is notion of the Inca reborn, Inca re, which is uh, Inca and the Spanish word for king, re, combined. There's a, a sense that there's going to be a millenarian um, revitalization of the Andean nation and it's going to rise again and take power, which is kind of a, uh, it's a narrative history that carries a lot of, uh, a lot of weight in, in the national psyche. Uh, on the much less uh, positive side of things, you get one of the two major insurrectionist movements from the 1980s. One of them was the, the Shining Path, which was a Maoist right. movement. And the right. other one, less well known, is the uh, Tupac Amaru movement, named after um, one of the uh, uh, people who tried to rebel against the Spaniards, Tupac Amaru III, uh, who started a rebellion, an unsuccessful rebellion in the mid-18th century. So uh, there's a, a tremendous resonance with the Inca identity, uh, both real and, um, shall we say, mythified, um, in the modern culture, in the modern psyche, in the modern politics. Uh, and so uh, it, it carries as much weight in Peru as, let's say, the Aztecs do in Mexico. Interesting. Terry, one of the, one of the points that I, I think we've been trying to deliver in in our messages to the audience about ancient civilizations is that we're starting to understand a lot more about the internal organization and the commercial and, uh, in some cases, military infrastructures that existed amongst these sophisticated indigenous societies. What do we know about the Inca, how they were organized internally, uh, what the relationships were between settlements and villages and commerce, and how the range of their, the extent of their empire was diffused across the Inca heartland and beyond. What can you tell us about that and social organization and economic organization and so forth? Sure. Let, let's see if I can summarize this uh, uh, in along a few lines. Let's look at the political, the ethnic, the economic. Um, <coughs> one of the places that we need to start is is by recognizing that the Incas only counted maybe a hundred thousand people. Of those, maybe twenty thousand were able adult males, and there were around twelve million people in the empire speaking scores and scores of different languages with really different ideas about how political life ought to be undertaken. Um, you had people living over in the eastern sides of the Andes, for example, who were just in small, self-sufficient, self-governing villages. And on the north coast of Peru, you had a full-fledged empire, a place called Chimor, which had as many as three million people in it. And then there were all sorts of things in between. Uh, so when the Incas undertook to govern these people, 
you, they couldn't do it with one size fits all because the local folks were going to respond very differently. Some people would know what law was, some people wouldn't. Some people wouldn't know what administration was, some, some wouldn't. And so what the Incas basically did was they created an umbrella of Inca supervisory officials. So they set up around 80 provinces. They named a real ethnic Inca as their ruler. And then they worked through the local system. So they would appoint a whole series of subordinate ethnic lords in the local region to work on behalf of the Inca state. They give them a bunch of privileges like uh, extra special gifts, cloth. They give them uh, herds. They give them uh, household servants, lots of wives. And in return for that, these local lords were supposed to uh, work on behalf of the Incas. For instance, they were supposed to um, uh, apply the labor tax. They were supposed to mobilize the men who would go out and fight in wars. They were supposed to provide the, uh, the porters who carried the supplies, the people who built the, uh, the road system and maintained it. Uh, so all of the kinds of tasks that the Incas needed to have conducted for them, they worked through the local leadership as a way of doing it. Uh, as you might uh, expect, some people took to this and said, okay, well, I'll, you know, I'll do it, I get privileges from it, and the option is to be uh, killed. And uh, folks on the uh, other end of the spectrum resisted. There, there were constant, constant insurrections against the Incas. Um, some of them were so serious that the Incas completely wiped out the adult population, or they would completely vacate a province and break folks up into small groups and ship off colonies all over the empire. So the, the, the idea that there was a standardized hierarchy where there was a rule of decimal officials, someone ruled over 10 households, someone ruled over 100 households, and then there was somebody ruling over 1,000, up to 10,000 households. You know, that's the kind of standard model, but there were all sorts of personal negotiations there. Um, in terms of the economics... The Incas came from a highland society, so they were really attuned to, to farming and herding as the dual parts of their uh, uh, agro-pastoral strategy. They weren't very specialized, so they didn't have money, for instance. They didn't have uh, what we would think of as marketing systems or weekly or even daily markets where people would go and in, engage with, uh, uh, exchange with other people who specialized in producing one thing or another, like pots or like... Uh, uh, wooden tools or, or cloth or something like that. Uh, instead, every community held all of its resources in common. So they would hold, let's say, all of the lands for farming in common, and then someone who was a member of a family would get access to some lands because he was a member of that community. Um, or you get access to pasture lands because you were a member of that community. So what the Incas did then uh, was they said, all right, you guys can be self-sufficient in your local communities. What we're going to do is set up, we're going, to, we're going to sequester, we're going to set aside a bunch of agricultural lands that we're going to have you, all you local folks come in and work for us. We're going to set aside a bunch of pastoral lands and you're going to come take care of our herds. We're going to claim the gold mines and the silver mines here and here. You folks are going to come and mine for us. So we're basically going to have an independent economy which allows you to function on your own, but you have to work for us for about two or three months a year. And that worked pretty well, but it was built on the Highland model, so there wasn't much specialization of production, there wasn't much exchange, there wasn't, uh, um, there wasn't any money involved in this. And that's quite different from most of the other empires of the world that we know about. Now, in order to make this work, the Incas needed to have an organized administration, and they, they really did this in two ways. Uh, one of them was they had to build an infrastructure. So they used existing road systems and then build new roads, uh, covering, as I mentioned at the beginning, around 24,000 miles, 
Then they established provincial centers in every one of their provinces, and then secondary and tertiary all the way down the line, facilities that had storage, that had lodgings, that had uh, ceremonial facilities, uh, that had big plazas. And those were the places where the politics and the economics and the hospitality of the state all took place. So let's say a, a concrete example, if people on an annual basis people from a given province would be called into the center. There'd be about a, a week-long beer bash. Everyone would get drunk. They'd get, be given gifts and food. Uh, there'd be big parties and dancing and music. And at the end of that, the Inca representative there would say, okay, here are your obligations for the next year. We'll see you when it's time to come and pay off your labor duties. So there was the sense that, that the state was this big... Um, he was the Lord who provided generosity, and in return for this, the people uh, owed their, their labor in return. They got protection, they got ceremonial leadership. So the Incas basically tried to take the local model, write it on the grand scale, and make everyone buy into it, which they didn't. There was a lot of resistance, but that was the idea behind the economy. And on that note, we're going to have to take another quick break, and we will be back with Dr. Terry Daltroy and continue our fascinating discussion on the Incas and the incredible empire that they generated after these words. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Many people are seeking to make a difference in the world, but few actually have the tools to do so. Every week, host Mary Beth Lodge and her guests will have you thinking forward and will give you the tips to keep your life, goals, priorities, and choices on track. The result is an easier, happier, and more inspired life. The name of the program is What Matters. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What really matters is the positive changes that you'll bring to your life and the world just by listening. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Can you dig it, baby? 
This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're back with our very fascinating discussion with uh, Dr. Terry Deltroy, who is one of the world's leading authorities on the Inca culture. And Terry is talking about essentially uh, the largest and most extensive indigenous empire in the New World. Uh, I think these are concepts that many of us simply don't know that much about, and he's described it in, in, in grand detail and essentially told us that this indigenous population of Incas, who effectively numbered over slightly over 100,000 people, lorded over, uh, for lack of a better word, an empire over tw- of over 12 million people. In that connection, um, we know that the Incas had no means of recording information through how we would, uh, which in the form of, of writing, and yet they were able to organize this very complex empire. Terry, tell us about their systems, their organizational systems, uh, what they used instead of writing, and, 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 and how that all was systematically organized into a system that obviously worked so well. Sure, that's, that's one of the really intriguing parts of uh, current Inca research. Uh, let me just take a second to, to set the context here. Um, we often think of writing as something that people discovered, and uh, in fact, people invented writing, and they invented it to solve particular kinds of uh, problems of recording information over time, communicating over space. Uh, and writing wasn't the only way that people have done that. So we think just very briefly, we can think of uh, other kinds of systematic recording systems, like, let's say, mathematical notation or choreographic notation, or musical notation, or chemical notations. There's just a whole array of of kinds of systematic recording systems that don't require our using words as language written down uh, in a form that we would think of as writing. So we need to be a little bit more uh, ampliative in the way we think of, of the information that was recorded and the way that it was done. Now, it turns out that the Incas drew on a system of uh, registers, um, these are called kipu, that had been around for at least a thousand years before the Incas came along. They just elaborated a technology that was already there. And what the kipu were, were not records. They're basically strings, with colored strings, that hung down from a, uh, a main cord, and they were colored in different ways, and they were ordered in different ways, and they had knots on them that recorded information very, very systematically. Uh, about two-thirds of them seem to have been based on some kind of a decimal uh, numerical system, and about a third of them don't seem to have been organized that way. They were organized in, in some form that uh, recorded information uh, in ways that haven't quite been deciphered yet. So, unfortunately, no one has yet been able to decipher a single kipu. The Spaniards never figured it out. Uh, they actually trusted the information in the kipu so much, however, that they would allow the not-record specialists, the guy who's, guys who kept these kipu not-records, they'd allow them to come into the Spanish courts and dictate from those kipu as court testimony. And they, in fact, um, they required the, the uh, indigenous peoples, the Incas and other folks, to record information on kipus, like they would do things like uh, um, church services, liturgies, and things like that, that then they could use to teach the local folks. So the Incas uh, had a system for recording information the Spaniards never got. No one has ever written down exactly how it worked. But some scholars are now starting to figure out some parts of it. Uh, the leading scholar, and this is a fellow by the name of Gary Erton, who is at Harvard, 
Uh, Frank Solomon, uh, recently retired from the University of Wisconsin, has been working on this as well. Um, but basically, the, what we now think is that the, uh, the Kipu system was based on uh, a meaning-based system. That is, not a language-based, but meaning-based. So what I mean by this is that, let's say, a category of information kept on, on uh, a Kipu would include things like the census, or the count of the flocks, or military activities, or histories, or uh, royal genealogies, or uh, even, even poetry was written down or was recorded on Kipus. And based on the color coding and, and the kind of way that the knots were laid out, whoever was a specialist in that information could probably have, with a little bit of help from the um, memorial, uh, from the memorized um, story that went with that, could just basically dicta- dictate out the entire set of information that was recorded on that kipu. So, uh, if we just take one example, if we want to take, let's say, the census, you might have a census for a province, and the first string on that census would say the total number of people who live in this province. And then the next one would be the total number of adult males. So the Incas divided the, the population up into uh, ten categories <coughs> excuse me, of males <coughs> and ten of females based on their age grades and productivity. So there'd, there'd be a register of all of the people belonging to those categories. And then there'd be sums, you know, who was married, who was not married. So on one not record, you'd have the entire census of a province. Someone would just pull up and read back at will. And so they had they had the ability to record very very precise, very detailed, very accurate information that could be called up by someone who'd been uh, uh, trained in reading those. But we still haven't completely decoded it. We haven't decoded one yet, not one. Really? Uh, yeah. Now Gary has is in the process now. He has just found um, and just announced as of oh, two or three months ago. Uh, finding a uh, a kipu and a um, uh, early colonial document that appear to correspond to one another. So we're very hopeful that he will get some uh, advances on that. But uh, that's all I can all I can say about that. I don't want to give anything away on it because I'm uh, it's not really my information to uh, to provide. So we we can uh, very patiently await the possibility of a potential Rosetta Stone here somewhere. Well, yeah, something if not a Rosetta Stone, perhaps a Rosetta Pebble. Uh, okay. Yeah, let let me get into some of your recent research which deals with 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 more cosmic questions and, and really more conceptual issues um specifically uh, time and space and the concepts of life how the incas saw the world which i think is something that most of us are really curious about why don't you get into issues of uh concept and and seeing the universe and and how the incas viewed the world sure let me uh i'm just going to dip my toe into this because it gets a very uh very complicated and very, very interesting very quickly. But let's just start out with the idea of, of what did it mean to be alive. Um, we think of life as being something where there's a pre-life, so you're, you're, you're not born yet. You were born and then you die. Uh, and that goes for all living beings. Uh, the Incas thought about life in very different ways. Um, they thought of the life that we think of uh, as being alive uh, as a very transitory state. So it's a fleshy soft, kind of wet state, and after you die, you move to the permanent, pure, solid state that continues on in infinitum uh, for time immemorial. So when people died, they didn't go away. 
what happened was their their uh, their spirit still existed. It just flew off to the origin place for where the people came from. So where was that origin place? Most Andean peoples thought that their individual culture, their own, own individual society, had been called forth from the earth by the creator God at a particular place. Could be a spring, could be a mountain peak, could be a rock. Uh, it could be any of a number of places on the landscape, but their whole orientation was built around the notion that that is where they came from, and then that is where they would go after death. Now, one of the ways this played out in royal politics is that when a ruler died, his body was mummified, and that mummy, along with his principal wife, who was also mummified, would continue to participate actively in royal politics. They were thought capable of speaking, of listening, of participating in public events, so they would eat and drink, uh, and then people posed questions to them, and uh, the other folks, uh, then they would listen, and um, so there would, these mummies, all the way back to the origin group, of, they were thought to be uh, uh, 13 generations of royal Incas by the time the Spaniards arrived, they were all still there, they were all still participating. Now, paralleling this humanity that, that went all the way back to the origins of, of people, uh, the Incas also thought that there were all sorts of beings on the landscape that were equally alive. So mountain peaks were alive, they were conscious, they had thoughts, they had will, they had the ability to, to cause things to happen. So the, the mountain peaks owned the flocks, they caused the weather. Um, the water from that flowed off the mountain peaks fertilized Mother Earth, who was also a living being, and brought forth, uh, brought forth the crops. Uh, so rocks and humans were thought to be able to exchange vitality. You could go from one state to another, so a person could turn into a rock, a rock could turn into a person. And the idea here was not that there was some sort of a transubstantiation, changing from one substance to another. The idea right. was that the life that existed was the same in both. So you had these parallel societies, human beings and the parallel society of the ancestors and of the uh, uh, social landscape. So what this meant was that the Incas were living in a world that was far more alive than the world that we live in. They were living but in a do world we have do we have any analogies with other indigenous cultures in North America, or was it purely, as far as you know, just the Incas that visualized the world this way? Because the Aztecs certainly had different concepts, as well as uh, some of the groups in the Southwest. Yes, we know. Let's say in, in Mesoamerica, for example, you take the Maya as a good example, right? Uh, or or the people of the Valley of Oaxaca, uh, the site of Monte Alban. Uh, there was a sense. Their sense was that the ancestors had had gone to live in the clouds, but you could still inter interact with them. So you would give sacrifices. You you would communicate with them, and and in your in, in your interactions with them, they would intervene on behalf of humanity to make sure that things went well on Earth. Uh, the Incas had a much more active uh, notion of this, that they didn't have any idea that there was some sort of transcendental heaven or hell. They thought, they thought that there were things spiritual, but they thought that they, those things all existed in the same material plane. They were all there together and could interact with one another. Um, so w one of the things that comes about from this is that the Incas thought that everything that had existed in the past was still present today. It hadn't gone away. It was just in a different condition. It was in a different state. So you could interact with the past and change it. And, and that led to a very, very different notion of what history was about, was about, because history wasn't something that was fixed. History was the relationship that you had 
with the past as it's currently constituted. So one, I'll just give you one, one classic example of this. Um, in early, uh, in 1532 and then again in 1534, there were two uh, royal Inca mummies that were burned. The one in 1532 by the Incas, the one a couple of years later by the Spaniards. Now, the Spaniards burned the mummy of a ruler because they thought it was the vessel for the voice of the devil and wanted to, to stop the devil from being able to speak to people. And so that's understandable from their perspective. But sure. The Incas burned a mummy because what they wanted to do was to remove that actor from the stage of history so that he could no longer have a voice in contemporary politics. So if you burn a mummy... You eliminate that living ancestor of one of the royal kin groups that's kind of the, the aristocracy running things in Cusco, and you eliminate the legitimacy for their existence. So, in essence, by burning a, uh, a mummy, what you're doing is changing history, and when you change history, what you change is what's legitimate today. So, they were very actively engaged with modifying the past. Um, to constantly reconfigure what was legit, what, what could be thought of as legitimate rulership today. So they had a, a very different notion of the past. Let me, let me just say one other thing about that, because this takes us into time and space. We normally think of time as being past, present, and future. Okay? They thought of past, present as one thing. It lies before us because we can see it. The future is behind us because we can't see it. So what, what, what their notion of time was is that time is fixed with us. Time passes through us. It pa comes from behind us and then recedes away from us in front of us. And that's, that's a very different notion of us passing through time in a particular space. Uh, and it, what it meant was that they had a very flexible, malleable notion of how we, uh, of how we interact with time. They didn't know how old they were. They didn't keep track of how many calendar years had passed for any particular event. That wasn't important to them. Yeah, it's not relevant to their cycle. No, no. They, they, they had cycles. So the Earth was regenerated every thousand years. On an right. annual basis, you have the seasons. But the idea of whether something happened 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago wasn't really relevant because it was in the past. It was still, you could still interact with it. Uh, it was just something that was a little farther distant in the past. So nobody, ex with, perhaps with the exception of the rulers in the Inca Empire, could really say, I'm thus and such many years old. Um, when people testified to the Spaniards in royal courts, in one year they'd say, oh, I'm about 60, and the next year they'd come along and say, I'm 90. They didn't know. And it was an alien concept, yeah. Yeah, it didn't matter to them. So... Then, if you take this one step further, there was no sense of progress. Okay, there was no sense that there was things moving in a progressive state. There was no tra no grand transformation over time. What you had was kind of a a constant present, and then periodically there was a grand transformation. Things were totally overthrown. History stopped, and it started all over again. Now, interestingly enough that moment of transformation where everything stopped and then the world was created again was called a pachacuti. That's a turning over of time and space. Pach is the unified earth time concept, so they overthrew it. So what was the name the first Inca ruler took? He took the word pachacuti, turner over of time and space, ender of history, 
as his title when he started the Ink Empire. He, he, what he was saying was that I'm wiping out everything that ever occurred before, and I'm starting the world all over again with my reign. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to end this cycle, if you will, <laughs> uh, concluding it with this very fascinating discussion with uh, Dr. Terry Daltroy on the Incas. Uh, thanks very much for being with us, Terry, and hopefully we will have the opportunity to even expand on some of these uh, most fascinating discoveries in the future. Until next time, this is Joe Schildenrein, and uh, we look forward to uh, having you listen to our program again um, next week. Thank you so much, and good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schildenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. It's staff and management.